1: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with China. Subscribe to China's daily email newsletter to stay on top of the latest news from China, or download our new and improved smartphone app, or visit the website at SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. And while you're there, check out our new business news podcast, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, for a weekly roundup of top stories from Caixin, China's authoritative source for business and financial news. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by Jeremy Goldcorn, who is casting his eyes about with suspicion and horror because we are i kid you not we are in trump tower in midtown manhattan Trump Tower
2: <laughs> in the hotel anyway where we've come to talk to one of the towering figures in the chinese tech world dr kaifu li kaifu li is many many things he's a popular author and speaker a very successful venture investor and incubator the former head of not only microsoft but also google in china He's also a cancer survivor in remission after treatment for stage four lymphoma. Kaifu is in New York because not only did his daughter graduate from Columbia, but Kaifu
1: was the commencement speaker at Columbia's engineering school just the other day. Uh, he's just published a book about artificial intelligence in Chinese, and uh, AI is not only something he's been thinking about very deeply, but also an area where his venture fund, Sinovation Ventures, is deeply invested. In fact, Sinovation, which some of you may still know by its former name, which is Innovation Works, uh, now operates. It's the Sinovation Ventures Artificial Intelligence Institute. And today, much of our conversation will focus on AI, specifically in China. Kaifu, great to see you again. And thanks so much for, for making the time. Well, uh, pleasure to be here. And I'm merely a resident in the Trump residence. <laughs> well, that, that <laughs> was that, my first question. <laughs> what are <laughs> we doing? <laughs> Before we do that, we need to introduce another special guest who just joined us. Uh, we w- walked into the, into the suite where Kaifu is staying. And we happened to see an old friend, Jiayang Fan from The New Yorker, who is a Finishing up an interview, so we asked her to stay along. Uh an old friend of the podcast, of course, so she'll join in as a host.
0: I'm very happy to be here. Elizabeth a bit of su- a surprise um to see you too, but <laughs> always a pleasure.
1: Well good, good, good. Uh, when is she gonna make her cooking show debut? Well, well we're I
0: we're you about that, Jeremy. Yeah.
1: I mean. <laughs> it's, it's coming, it's coming. We're
3: right. working on it. Yeah. So Kaifu, can I ask why are we in the Trump Tower? <laughs> <laughs> Because a friend of mine owns this suite, and he uh, rents it to me at a good price. Okay. <laughs> does, that make,
1: does that make it acceptable? Oh, absolutely. Well, right. You're happy that you're saving money. Yes. <laughs> good, good. So, we started our podcast, Kaifu, a little over seven years ago. And our first episode taped on April 1st, 2010, the show was about Google's exit from China. Uh, David Drummond, who was Google's chief legal officer, uh, dropped that that blog post on January 12th, announcing that he would no longer comply with censorship, even if it meant exiting the China market. Uh, and then after, of course, there was that clever workaround where they were redirecting all, all, all search queries to Hong Kong. Then and finally, in late March, the other shoe fell and Google was actually blocked and continued to be blocked sporadically at first and then with some finality. Uh, and so we we taped our first show about that. Uh, Kaifu, you left Google in September of 2009, is that right? Uh, that's correct, before the, the incident. Yeah, so now it's been over seven years. I'm hoping you can now talk candidly about how you felt, how you felt since, how you felt so about your decision to leave Google and Google's decision essentially to leave China. Sure. Um, my decision to leave Google had
3: nothing to do with that. Mm. It was all about seeing uh, the rising markets in the internet, in particular, at the time, mobile uh, internet. And also, I saw many of uh, my top people leave to do startups. And I saw the venture community becoming uh, mature. And I felt it was the right time to do an early stage fund, because that was the only area in the uh, entire chain that was immature and not being sufficiently helpful to entrepreneurs. So we started an early stage fund uh, called Sanovation now. now, about Google's decision, uh, it, it's obviously sad to see the work that uh, I've put in, the market share gains that we saw, the brand that we built, the followers we had, uh, were disappointed. But that was a decision they chose to make. I think, looking back, uh, the greatest products that uh, Google China produced appears to have been its people, yes. uh, many of whom we are funding, many of whom are executives at uh, top companies. And uh, it was a, a real honor and pleasure to have had the chance to work with them.
1: Well, as you know, I worked for one of the main competitors of Google. But uh, even so, I would say, and I said often then, that I would say Google was probably the American internet company that was most successful in China. I mean, it had a brand that was synonymous with innovation, with integrity, with global connectivity. It actually left a brand imprint in China unlike any uh, any other I think uh Western internet company uh you probably deserve some of the credit for that, but it it must have really broken your heart when when you left around the time that you were leaving operation Aurora were you already aware of the, the hacking attacks that that Google alleges were the real reason no. behind no, okay. they had not nothing to to do with that uh, did, right. did not know any of that and so afterward mm-hmm. i mean I, I was probably among the many people who thought that google 's decision was probably. Wrong that uh, they had come in in 2006 and early 2006 with this idea that, look, it isn't total fulfillment of our mission, Mm -hmm. but it is partial fulfillment. Mm -hmm. It's better than nothing. Some Mm -hmm. connectivity, Mm -hmm. some ability to offer choice was better than none. Uh, I think that I remember you saying things to that effect in the immediate aftermath that you were not happy with the way Google handled the decision to leave.
3: I I don't think I was, I used the word happy, but, uh, but I felt there was a need for uh, search products that were fair, and the market always needs uh, competition. And I felt uh, Google China did a good job, uh, at the time I was there, balancing um, the corporate policy and local law requirements, and I thought that could be maintained. Um, but obviously, after I left Google, I decided it could not. Let's shift topics a
2: bit. I'd like to ask you about the culture of entrepreneurship in China. You spent a few years uh, in the late 1990s with micro- Microsoft Research in China, just as the first wave of returnee tech founders like Charles Zhang were coming back and homegrown entrepreneurs like Jack Ma were starting some of China's first uh, internet behemoths. Back then, you could hardly say that China had anything like a culture of tech entrepreneurship, even 10 years later, say in 2008, it would be easy to imagine parents of, you know, a recent Tsinghua engineering graduate dissuading their son or daughter from trying to start a company and urging them to take a safe job with IBM or Huawei or Google or Baidu. Um, but something's definitely changed. And I mean, for me, this kind of was crystallized. I have some friends who are peasants, uh, uh, peasant farmers in a village in Hebei, and their son, who's in his early 20s, they for a few years ago they'd been trying to get me to help him get a job at a a big uh, you know conservative multinational company and I, when know, cause I was because because & Gamble right. <laughs> HR department has me on for speed dial um Uh, Anyway, I I visited them in February when Kaiz and I were in China for a a trip earlier this year. And I spent a whole afternoon talking to their son about his startup ideas. Um, (laughs) And if I had to myself name a single event that perhaps catalyzed the change, I'd probably say it was Alibaba's IPO and Jack Ma's ascent to the top of China's rich list. But there are a lot of other factors. What what do you think they are? You know, How did this new – and it really is new. I mean, Mm -hmm. for me, it feels like it's just, I mean, five years maybe. At a maximum, this culture of startup entrepreneurialism. How, how did this come about
3: in China? Uh, I would agree. Uh, Jack Ma's ascension to the top was very important mm-hmm. because I think he felt like the, the, the boy next door right, with Robin Lee and Charles Zhang, you know, people felt like these were superstar PhD types. Maybe that's not for me. But Jack, really, you know, the fact that his stories that he couldn't get a job at Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, I think that made everybody feel I could be like that too. And he can't code. (laughs) That's right. He can't code. Exactly. (laughs) I think that was uh, probably a very large, big event. I would like to think the founding of Sinovation Ventures was helpful for that to, the the belief to change as well. I remember in the first year... Yeah, I don't think you need to be modest about that, actually. I yeah, mean, you they, know, you're they, following on Chinese social media. Well, China you were supposed media. to say that, but you didn't, <laughs> so, I, so I am. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I remember the days when we started, you know, I was on a lot of uh, TV and internet where, and, and talking about why the age of entrepreneurship has arrived. And there were a lot of skeptics that a uh, at the time, an incubator like us could make any difference. And we had lots of debates. And I think those debates changed some people's minds. But I still remember the first set of um, engineers I tried to bring on board to work on the startups. Uh, I remember having to wine and dine their parents and tell them I would take care of their kids. Uh, writing a seven page letter to one of the parents, uh, those were the, the depths to which I went wow. to, to persuade, uh, them to, uh, let me take care of their kids, uh, to join me in entrepreneurship. Cause these weren't the startup CEOs, but they were, you know, not, uh, they were rejecting jobs from multinationals and, by do Alibaba and Tencent and, and take a much lower salary in a startup and the risks that came with it. Fortunately, at least, um, monetary wise, I, I think their parents are quite happy today with all of them, but, uh, it wasn't easy. Uh, but, but anyway, I, I think, um, uh, myself and Bob Xu and others who were early, early in getting the early stage investment going was helpful cat, uh, as a catalyst to to getting the country to understand entrepreneurship is something that should be encouraged for the people who want it but i would say there's nothing as big as the government push that ultimately changed people's mind the shuangchuang right the right. Uh, the double innovation let everybody be an entrepreneur let everybody be an innovator uh that statement, I think, shifted more people's minds than anything else added up together. And that has become, I think, a double-edged sword. I think on the one hand, um, entrepreneurship is now accepted. It's good. Everybody wants it. On the other hand, there are some misinterpretations because. Irrational
1: yes. exuberance over. Right. Know. And
3: also. I think the biggest issue is not, not having enough people explain the next level of detail. Uh-huh. That entrepreneurship isn't about making the next Baidu and Alibaba only. It's also about the service economy, about opening a coffee shop, about opening a Taobao store, about becoming a, uh, a driver of DD and also uh, someone who does deliveries for people to become self-employed. I think if we take this uh, to the right step and say entrepreneurship includes a large number of people, in the service and self-employment area, then that definitely takes China in the right direction because most people, uh, entrepreneurs, who want to be entrepreneurs cannot do the next Alibaba. uh, And they could do the the smaller service level things. And with the way the employment uh, pyramid will shape We really need people to become self-employed. There will be more smaller companies than large ones. There will be more self-employment than large company employment. There will be more service jobs, especially with uh, AI displacing many others.
0: The government push for entrepreneurship, I think, is understandable. And I think it's great that technology and innovation is being encouraged. But I wonder if there might possibly, or if there already is, friction between the creativity that's being encouraged, which naturally leads, I mean, especially when it comes to social issues, because, you know, um, technological innovation is as much about business as much um, as it is about the promotion of social good. For those grassroots organizations, that might lead to a need to collect information and share information. And one can see how that would easily butt up against political strictures on, you know, um, why that is, you know, advised at a time when, you know, information is still, I think, to some, expect, to some respect, being... Um, uh, yeah, you
1: don't need to dance around it. No. Right, right, right.
0: <laughs> it's, um, it's being, uh, you know, restricted. So do you feel like there is at all tension between technolo- the, 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 the kind of comprehensive development of creative technology and kind of the, the um, political pressures on information?
3: Yeah, this is a very common question uh, that I get in America. Uh, I do not believe that is an issue. Uh, not, not that I think it's a great thing. Uh, you know, that's a separate discussion we could have but i just think people understand where the boundaries are Mm -hmm. Uh, there's so much room for entrepreneurship and innovation you could do you know biotechnology you could do uh social networks you could do ai uh, you could do enterprise software you could do a coffee shop i think when you have that many choices of uh businesses you could start And there are certain things you cannot do. I think most people just uh, don't worry about the things they can't do uh, because there's enough choices of what they can do. And among them, they'll
1: find something they're excited about and they feel like they could uh, succeed. So Silicon Valley became such a hotbed for tech innovation in large part because at the time... It sat right on top of the entire supply chain of technology. It was where the chip fabs were. It was where the design shops were. It was where, um, so much of what was, was happening. We're seeing the same thing happening in China right mm-hmm. now, where we are sitting essentially, especially in, in mobile devices, in wearables, in IOT, uh, and, you know. Okay, you got to explain IOT. Sorry. The Internet of things, <laughs> right? So, you know, uh, and how much, I want to know how much it has helped that, especially in a place like Shenzhen, mm-hmm. we're sitting right on top of that. I mean, it strikes me that, uh, with all the ODM, and all the OEMs there, and all the component manufacturers as well. Uh, there's just that's a way radical. too much jargon. Yeah, re- re- reduction. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, everyone knows what I'm talking about. It's just such a reduction of friction, right? Mm. It's, it's it's so easy to pick up a phone, yeah. uh, and you're speaking the same language, and even the same dialect. And yeah. it's you just pedal your your you know Ofo bike down the street to meet with the inter- you can, iterate and prototype so much faster is this yeah. how how significant has this been and and right. i mean it's really how how much does it cripple the united states that the manufacturing has fled mm. well i don't ride awful bike i ride mobike. bike <laughs> <I'm> sorry, <laughs>
3: sorry. sorry. No, I'm are little, you invested little, in little, <laughs> I, of, course, can, of can course we have some disclosure yeah, sir. <laughs> we do have some disclosure here <laughs> yes uh in shenzhen i think is a is a great place it's a place that's full of people um who just want to you know do something great. And they do have the advantage of the supply chain. The other exciting thing is they can supply to the China market, which has a, at a lower cost, right. right? So if you look at a lot of those uh, uh, products like, uh, you know, wearable devices, um, uh, watches and, and, and rings and, and wristbands, you know, they, the, the Chinese version that's locally made uh, are can cost one fifth or one tenth the price. Mm. And that will drive up volume and uh, and drive up uh, the features. So the China market connected to Shenzhen production, I think, makes it doubly exciting. Now having said that, the intelligent hardware isn't probably the hottest area right now.
1: It's I, not an area where you're particularly investing in either.
3: We made some
1: investments. Okay. We
3: were pretty successful with our, uh, Xiaoyu Zai the, um, oh, right, 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 right. Uh, as an, as a product. We invest in some car what, devices. What yeah, Xiaoyu Zai Jia is like an, uh, Amazon, you Echo. know, the new Amazon Echo with the screen. Yeah, we actually did that before. So it's Amazon a home Echo. device that you can talk to. That's yeah, my right, home device, right? Yes, yeah, oh, it's it's home devices. Do yeah. Your shopping. Uh, and it can do all those things. But I think, uh, the, the number one feature is, uh, instant video conferencing, uh, with other mobile devices and connecting people to people. So we have made some success. I think overall our intelligent, uh, investments are pretty good. Intelligent hardware are pretty good, but the overall, uh, area hasn't really taken off. I think it's going to take probably the seven nano, uh, uh, next step in terms of making these devices, uh, have less electrical usage and um, easier Wi-Fi and things like that. uh, Do you you want to
1: quickly explain 7nano
3: yeah, it's just the next step in terms of making the semiconductor process even even smaller. Right. Yeah, it's a Taiwan semiconductor, Intel. More, people, more ed- energy efficient. Yeah, more now, energy batteries. efficient. E- exactly, exactly. So I, I do think that day will come. And also, I think in the back end, these smart devices haven't had AI to aggregate the data and make them intelligent yet. Right. So they're just called intelligent devices, but they're really devices. <laughs>
2: It seems that China it now boasts a pretty fully fledged entrepreneurial ecosystem. You know, there's a huge market of eager adopters, lots of uh, prosperity, uh, lots of money to spend. We have uh, investment capital, maybe too much. Um, you know, too few good deals. Possibly, there are funds in U.S. dollars and in renminbi, uh basically at all stages. There are a number of different exit possibilities for uh, tech companies, from a splashy NASDAQ IPO to an M&A. Deal uh, with Tencent or Baidu, Alibaba. Uh, so, what's missing, if anything? You know, what would you like to see better developed within the
3: uh, tech entrepreneurial ecosystem in China? Uh, the ecosystem is now complete. Uh... So from angel to A to, to venture to growth to PE to pre IPO to stock market. And the stock market is now tiered with, uh, NEQ, uh, the, um, um, uh, NASDAQ equivalent and then the NYSE equivalent. So NEQ is more the pink sheets equivalent. So the entire chain is complete. There are a few areas of strangeness. Uh, one is the Chinese stock share prices for tech stocks are inflated. Uh, for us, that's an advantage because a Chinese IPO can lead to a, a very good uh, valuation. And there will be more M&A by companies whose stocks are overvalued to acquire companies at a premium. Uh, but that is a little bit out of whack. Uh, it's out of whack but in a good way for us. Uh, and over time, that will, of course, reach an equilibrium uh, with, with the U.S. Um, I think another challenge is the uh, increasing uh Difficult fluidity of currency exchange. So an entrepreneur has to make a bad uh, decision. Do I get US dollars or local currency? Uh, for us as VCs, we just gotta make sure we have funds of both denominations. And you do. You're, you're, you're actually you have funds in both, right? We have both. Right. Yeah. Uh, but we have to balance them and, and, and there, and you can never second guess, uh, correctly which, uh, one is definitely the correct one. Right. So people go back and forth. It results in a lot of legal trouble and,
1: and, and time that, that it takes. But even five years ago, tech IPOs on a Chinese board were just, were, all- almost unheard of right and it's just amazing how much has changed now it's
3: now it's It's very absolutely commonplace yeah. yeah it's commonplace now so many people are choosing China of course as with any efficient market um as there are, there's enough supply in the China market that their, their, um, overvaluation will come down. Uh, another big problem, I think, with, with China is, uh, the pendulum swings too far, uh, in both ways, mm-hmm. right? Like two years ago, everyone's doing O2O, O2O, and the prices are going billions and billions. And then when they crashed, no one wants to put a cent in O2O and companies were closing down. Today, everyone's excited, excited about AI. And when a number of AI companies go out of business, there will be a swing to the other direction. Uh, So this overreaction and and basically um, people groupthink is an issue both at the entrepreneurial level as well as the venture capital level.
1: I want to ask you about something that I think is sort of more fundamental to, uh, it's not really something in the ecosystem, maybe something more in the culture. Uh, a couple of years ago on our show, we had the, the very good fortune of inviting a philosopher named Anna Greenspan on, and she had written a book about futurity, uh, specifically about Shanghai, uh, about how uh, the Chinese, young Chinese people especially, have a very different orientation uh different posture toward the future uh than you would find maybe perhaps in in many countries of the West. Uh talking to her and reading her book has basically convinced me that this is one of the great advantages that China has, that while in most of the rest of the world, much of the rest of the world, maybe outside of Silicon Valley, uh, you know, the science fiction visions are dystopian and dark. Technology has really, you know, has really screwed mankind in some fundamental way. Uh you know, we are kind of embarrassed by futures and we use, you know, Futurama, which was, you know, the 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 name of this General Motors exhibition in Shanghai or I mean in New York in in, in at the World's Fair. Uh by the way, I mean she opens her book talking about how in at the Shanghai Expo in two thousand ten there was another uh GM Exhibit that was also about technology driven futures. It's, it feels like this is lost in the West and it's still present in China. I know when I went to work every day at Baidu, it was just, there was a buoyancy. Everyone really kind of believed in what they were doing, uh, in the the ability of technology to positively impact mankind. I don't know if you if you've noticed that you spent a lot of time in the West, but you were there maybe in a different time. You were spending your time in, in America when America still had that. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that's, that's a change now that's happened? Change in America? Um, a change in America or, or, you know, the, 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 the rise of this, this buoyancy in China.
3: Yeah. Well, I think China today felt a lot like the Silicon Valley that I worked in in the, in the nineties. Right. That's so, what I'm getting at. So yeah. I'm not as in touch with today's pulse in America, but you're saying that's changed
1: here with the young people. Yeah. I think in the, in the culture broadly, not, I mean, I think that, that there's a sort of cynicism. Even th- as we embrace technology as consumers, we, we, we kind of sneer at, at the idea of flying cars and, you know, there, there's a lot of, Jeremy, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, I, I do think that there, there is a sort of a
2: glowing optimism. A lot of Chinese people feel about the future that isn't here in the, hmm. in the, in the U.S. and in other. Well,
3: that, that could be a problem for here then, because, uh, I think the optimism will drive more investment, more entrepreneurship exactly, right. and more, more better products that will go international.
0: Well, I I think perhaps, um, what you guys are alluding to is this sense of optimism that's combined with, um, possibly a naivete about what's possible, the sense that everything is possible, and that here, think, um, in the U.S., I mean, people's expectations are kind of managed by, you know, their sense of what's real and what's kind of impossible to achieve. And whether that's a pro, I mean, whether that's, um, for the Chinese, divan- you know, whether that's both an advantage and a disadvantage in that it gives them this kind of, you know, you know, this this limitless sense of like the future, hmm. but also this possibly this naivete about, you know, that that makes them unable to distinguish what's, you know, um, what's achievable and what's not achievable.
3: Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I think in China, people don't debate as much about <laughs> about, uh, you know, uh, can this technology be? used for bad things? How do you control the technology from going out of hand? How do you ensure fairness, remove bias? Yeah. Uh, those questions come up a lot here. Mm-hmm. Uh, morality question, mm-hmm. autonomous vehicles, there's a trolley problem. <laughs> uh, and, and I think uh, that debate is uh, alive and well mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. which I think is great for intellectual stimulation. Mm-hmm. But if that slows down the progress, mm-hmm. then uh, countries like China will catch up. Because, uh, there aren't so many ethical constraints. There isn't so much. Right. <laughs> well, that's one way to put it. I <laughs> would like to think, uh, we VCs and entrepreneurs, uh, would still try to ensure the products are put responsibly to good use without breaking laws or hurting people. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yes, I think people think more about execution results. Mm-hmm. And I think governments, uh, tend to look at ultimate efficacy as opposed to, you know, specific details of two views and which, which is, um, more, more prevalent.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Kaifu, uh, Kaiza and I were privileged uh, the other night to uh, attend a, a speech you gave the Harvard Club here in New York, and you talked about mega trends for China, essentially. Mm-hmm. Could you share with our listeners what you think some of the most important trends of the next decade and sure. uh,
3: onwards would be? Sure. I, I talked about several, several big trends. Um, first, let's talk about trends that have already happened. Okay. Um, actually, I just found the New York Times, uh, op-ed piece I wrote a few years ago where several of the predictions are, are, are now true. Uh, one is, uh, people's usage patterns are changed. We call this consumer upgrade. So people now, um, uh, eat the deli- food delivery and they want good food delivery. Uh, they're buying clothes, not just on Taobao, but buying it on higher end. And, and people like to have good things in life, and that's one change. Uh, another change is uh, the fact that uh, the phones have become wallets. People don't use cash, in, th- nor do they need credit cards. That causes very effective transaction. Okay. Uh, and a much lower cost and micropayments be are possible. So China is already ahead. So that's a, those are some trends that have already happened. Some of the new trends that we see. One is in uh, education and the power of internet in education. Um, we, we see parents wanting everything for their only child. And, uh, if you can deliver an American teacher to their, uh, child remotely by video conferencing, they'll pay, um, very uh premium prices for that and we're funding a number of companies in in that area uh we think enterprise software will be on the rise uh it can hardly not be on the rise given it's zero so right. and that's going to be a huge area at some point uh it will take time for that one uh, to 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 catch we think uh, internet based entertainment will uh, continue to be very innovative. We invested in some of the top shows. Some of these are video shows, debate shows, scene shows, uh, idol, idol girl group shows. Uh, I won't go into details here,
1: but, uh, uh, but they're. Well, you did talk about a couple of them and they were very they, they yeah. strange to me and yeah. interesting. There's one called SH48 or S-NH48. something. SNH48. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you've been away too, too long from I China. Have been, right. This is the well, huge I'm too hit. Old, but, but, yeah, uh, have
3: you heard of the most beautiful Chinese girl in the 4,000 years? Uh, that that was part of... That's one of the... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Si, si, you are getting old. <laughs> uh, uh, but this is one of the campaigns that that, that, that came out of SNH48. Basically, what SNH48 is, it, it has elements of Major League Baseball. It has elements of Tamaguchi. It has elements of Social Network. It has games of, elements of computer gaming. So all the people participate in the development of these 200 girls from five cities. So the cities compete against each other, the girls compete against each other, Uh, they start out being like the girl next door. And then, uh, their fans give them feedback on what they should do to become superstar. And then a small number of them do become superstars. And as an, a, a creative agency, SNH48 takes a much higher percentage fee than the Hollywood fees. But in addition, there is a monetization from, uh, uh both, uh, a co- commercial, from, um, from movies, from, uh, as well as from the consumer payment Because people pay to attend these concerts. They also pay to attend virtually. They also send virtual gifts, which uh, fly across the roof of the, of the theaters. uh, So this this is, is, this
1: is some kind of like K pop grassroots factory on steroids. Exactly. That's a very good description. Oh my God. Yes. But it sounds horribly retrograde in so many ways. I mean, in terms of gender identity. I mean, it's... Uh. Well, there's one for boys, too. <laughs> oh,
3: okay. well, that makes <laughs> Does that good. make you feel better?
1: <laughs> Sign me up, Jeremy. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. yeah.
3: No, I don't think so. <laughs> but, well, But there are elements of this innovation that, right. uh, that of how do you um, appeal to people? How do you connect consumers faster to the product? Right. If right. you think about how You know, WeChat and Facebook and Snapchat have improved. It's because their products are connected to people and feedback instantly makes them better. So now we're connecting these to the development of uh, the next Lady Gaga, if you will.
0: Right. Right. I mean, I think. You know, so much of this new technology is, I think, you know, front of the line and really, um, you know, connecting people, people, you know, ordinary people to celebrities. And um, and uh, it does, you know, make everyone sort of, you know, stay in front of their computers and phones. I wonder the degree to which this the data and also the connectivity can be harnessed for um social good, and what I mean is in China, there's still this very entrenched problem of the rural and urban divide, and you know there is a substantial part of the population that still um, probably skipped over the laptop PC generation and now just have their phones. And how is it, you know, is it possible that we could harness the technology so that they can participate kind of in the society? Yeah,
1: are there social entrepreneurs using the same technology, in uh, the same trends? There are very few social entrepreneurs in China. So, so that's, that's got to f- be something that we can identify as missing from the ecosystem. (laughs) Uh,
3: But that could change when the age of AI arrives and the data becomes available and then people don't have to worry about the, the money. Mm-hmm. Right. That's often an important part
1: of, um, getting it beyond the stage. Yeah. And that's something that we're but, going to talk about in some depth, because I know you've thought very long and hard about these particular issues. Right.
3: But let me give you kind of a, um, a worrisome example, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that, as you mentioned, in the fourth and fifth tier cities, mm-hmm. what do the young people do there right. as they connect to the internet? Um, uh, it turns out they actually use, uh, um, they actually are not as, uh, connected to the mainstream uh, WeChat, uh, Weibo kinds of communities. Mm-hmm. As an example, there is a community that's largely by these uh, small-town um, uh, young people called Kuaishou.
0: Uh-huh. I don't
3: know if you're familiar with that. Uh, they are creating, um, this is not our investment, they're creating celebrities who um, essentially do crazy things to attract a uh, follower base. You know, they would huh. uh, eat a raw snake or, um, uh put a dynamite in their pants and uh, light it. <laughs> not dynamite, no, sorry, uh, firecrackers, okay. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> firecracker. Sorry, firecracker in their pants and light, light and it. <laughs> no, 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 not suicide, okay. but they do hurt themselves as a way to attract fan base and then they get a lot of fans and then they sell products to make a living.
0: So, so they're so, quite different from the wang hong. Show and wang hong are two different concepts, I uh, imagine.
3: I, we could call the kuaishou popular people a subset of wang, subset wang, of wang hong, yeah. but uh-huh. they do so not because of their beauty Lux. or or there's their talent, uh-huh. but because of their willingness to maim themselves and do crazy things. So it's like jackass. <laughs> it's Just like jackass. online <laughs> for Chinese people from fourth-tier That's right. Okay. So I, I, that makes us feel better.
1: <laughs> it
3: is jackass, right. Yes.
1: Okay. So, uh, I want to spend most of the rest of our time talking yeah. about AI, okay. which is, of course, the biggest megatrend that it we're, is the we're biggest, really talking right. about. Um, <clears throat> given China's history of strong central government uh, control, especially economic control, most people would probably agree that you know the ethical and regulatory environment for big data and AI in China is more permissive than you would find in the U.S., maybe, or, or surprisingly permissive. Um, first of all, would you agree that that's the case? And we, we talked about that. We flipped mm-hmm. at it, and you had some misgivings. And second, do you think that this is going to conser- confer any kind of an advantage on Chinese AI actors? And finally, do you, do you find this permissiveness if you think that there is any, to be troubling or problematic to you? Sure, I think the
3: permissiveness uh, is is arguably true, but I don't think it's the major factor. I think the major factors are the following. Uh, first, let's talk about what what's an AI app, right? Most people think about AI, they think it's autonomous vehicles or robots, but actually that's kind of the later stage AI. The earliest stage is actually big data AI, right? May 2, getting a lot of faces, learning how to make your eyes more beautiful. Um, um, Baidu getting a lot of data, making the search results or the ads more accurate or better monetized. Taobao knowing what to promote to you. Uh, and the Meituan knowing to how to uh, sell something to you to uh, deliver to your home and so on. So it's big data AI. Uh, and then it's really, uh, financial AI, you know, uh, uh Better loan determination right. for credit card fraud and insurance and banking and so on, and then it's a medical AI, you know, for radiology and X-rays and MRIs and so on, and and then it's uh, you know in, in intelligent devices, sensors, and then eventually robot and uh, autonomous vehicles. Right. Behind all of this is large data that makes it possible. Um, AI only works when you have a huge amount of data fed through algorithms to determine. Uh, the outcome right what uh, go play should I make what uh, product should I recommend on Taobao right. how, how do I make uh, her eyes more beautiful um, those are things with definitive markings how do we which stock should I buy should I loan Money to
1: this person, while well, he or she replay, repay but you, so need so, data, right? you need lots of data. You so. need lots of data. That's what my 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 former colleague Andrew Eng said. You know, it's the rockets and the rocket fuel. The rockets, are, of course, the the hardware and the algorithms themselves. You know, the, yes. these massive DNNs, and then the rocket fuel is, of course, the data. And you that's one right. is no good without the other. Right? <clears throat> that's right. That's right. Uh,
3: the rockets are becoming increasingly well known. At least decent rockets, maybe not the best, but uh, a, a decent rocket with a lot of fuel can take you a long way. Yeah, And and that's where China has an advantage. So I think China's primary advantage is that there are many domains in which there is larger user base, therefore more data. And more data means you can make better algorithms. Uh, The second advantage is China's huge engineering population who can learn to uh, become the rocket scientists, if you will. Uh, You need rocket scientists and you need rocket engineers. And the rocket scientists are sometimes uh, people coming out of Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent coming out of university returning from the US um, uh, including from Google, Facebook, Microsoft and the rocket engineers are the new grads who are rushing to get into uh, this um, uh, gold rush of, of AI so all of this I think are the main elements I think the permissiveness that you talk about is maybe the freeness in which data is maybe used or or maybe in some cases even traded or sold on the market. I do think the government is trying to uh, limit and actually put as criminal activity the act of certain types of selling privacy data so i think the the at least the the laws in those areas are getting better uh that's not to say there isn't a lot of data being traded and sold right. that isn't to say that companies are treating privacy data with the same level of respect that's treated in the US but it's it's getting better and it's probably not the not the main cause and another thing that's important is i think um uh, the speed of execution is much faster in China. So companies that, once they figure it out, data can be turned into making money and saving money, people work around the clock to figure out how to make that possible. And also, uh, China AI algorithms, when applied to to domains that didn't have AI before, the the bar is much lower. In other words, the Chinese enterprise software take credit card fraud detection as an Mm -hmm. example it's much worse than the US Mm -hmm. so an AI company uh, has only a very very low bar to, to pass to get bought to show economic value. So I think all of these things will come back and uh, make China the perfect market for AI, uh, initially with big data, but eventually with autonomous uh, vehicles.
1: In some areas, uh, the kind of freewheeling Wild West uh, data uh, controls in in China, uh, for example, with respect to health data, you were t- telling me the other night uh, that it's it's really, really segmented, that it's uh, really siloed, that hospitals don't share, uh, and it's out of this fear because of of their awareness of just how how, uh, the the potential for abuse of of data. It seems to have inhibited the development of some kind of medical-related AI technologies that's really too bad because uh, but that's a universal issue I think
3: uh, generally speaking yeah, not just China yeah right. I think right. every every hospital is uh, rightfully trying to protect the patient's uh, privacy and data but I think if we look at the greater good uh, I would advocate we should come up with some way to remove as much personal inf- information as possible but retain the some degree of medical records and the images and the patient history and eventual survival rate and and aggregate that across the world uh, we might uh, that's a case where I think we might compromise uh, maybe a little bit of uh, reverse engineered privacy Uh, we wouldn't Purposely, you know, expose any, but then we could save so many lives and solve so many diseases. I think we, as mankind, should come together and figure out how to do that. Absolutely, but not happening.
2: What are your thoughts on the role that the Chinese government is playing in the development of AI? Uh, there are a lot of China watchers, and uh, certainly may- many American political leaders who hear about Beijing's mm-hmm. enthusiasm for AI, mm-hmm. and frankly, worry uh, about the the terrible Chinese killer bots or, you know, the stuff of nightmares. Uh, should we be worried about an AI arms race? And how should the U.S. regard uh, China or the
3: Chinese government's uh, AI ambitions? I think both the Chinese government and the U.S. government are aware of how important AI is, and both are funding, supporting um helping companies to to move in these directions as far as military ai i, I would have no idea since right. i don't engage in either us or chinese military ai um but uh, we we do know when we talk to the chinese officials they are knowledgeable they are supportive um and they want to fund efforts to help make uh, more platforms and more entrepreneurship
1: possible on on ai so uh, fu uh, one trend that we're, we've been seeing is that major deep learning pioneers, guys like Jan LeCun, who's at, who's at Facebook now, uh, and Andrew Eng, and who was at Baidu until fairly recently, uh, they are, have basically abandoned the universities, the big research institutes for, for, uh, the private sector for the big internet companies. It's, it's easy to understand why. I mean, they have the data, they have the hardware, they have the resources, they can pay the big salaries that yeah. attract these guys. But is this, a, is this a danger to see, first of all, so much AI firepower accruing in the hands of a very limited number of large internet companies? And is it a danger that we're seeing sort of the hollowing out of the research institutions? I, I think it is a danger worldwide, but in particular to U.S. and
3: Canada, because that's where a lot of the top scientists reside. Uh, I think we need to uh, do something about that. <clears throat> and uh, the it comes down to really um, uh, uh, three questions. One is, uh, can someone in an academic institution get a large amount of data so they don't have to join a, a big one to right. do that. Two can they increase their own pay or economic return in in some uh, way, shape, or form? And actually, three, uh, can the amount of time they waste on writing uh, government grant proposals be reduced? Because these are the three things that attract them to Facebook and right. Google and <laughs> Baidu and so on. And I think we as uh, 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 sort of the open community uh should somehow come together and make that happen. Uh, so, so some opportunities that may be open for all of us would be how do we collect an open data set and make that available to the academicians? And two, how do universities, how should universities think about AI researchers and how to pay them? Universities sometimes pay MBA professors a great deal. Arguably, AI professors should get the same. And thirdly, uh, a lot of these university professors publish a paper. Then some entrepreneur takes it and builds a product and makes a billion dollars. Uh, how should the professor find some way of getting at least some share of that? Uh, and and currently, there's the, the mechanisms are are not clear except through, rather generally bureaucratic university patent licensing offices and that's that's way too slow because this is not about patent uh, it's about uh, um, knowledge transfer and code transfer and time to market that could be in return you know five percent share of the company or something like that so uh, and and then it's about the grant proposal maybe there should be uh, uh, some kind of uh, 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 gifting process where the professors can get their basis covered without
1: having to write uh, a very long proposals just to cover each student in the United States we have the added difficulties of you know that kind of research funding drying up under Trump right i mean
3: yeah so i don't know maybe uh maybe we can help <laughs> maybe the vcs can pull a uh, a fund that will uh, support the researchers because for the vcs it's your long term interest It's in our long-term interest. We don't want everyone to go to Microsoft and Facebook and Google. Right.
2: Um, so, can you talk about some of the AI uh, plays that uh, your company, your firm, uh, Sunnovation Ventures, has made? And one of the things that really interested me at uh, your talk the other night was the micro lending service, uh, Bao. Um, yes. Could you talk about that company and some of the other AI investments you have?
3: Sure. Uh, we have a company called uh, Smart Finance, and they make a product called Bao. Uh Let me describe it it's an app that you download. And when you need, uh, let's say, $200, you click a button, and in eight seconds, the money comes to your phone. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, people use the phone for money nowadays through WeChat and Alipay. So this is extremely convenient to the average Chinese uh a mobile user because uh, they probably generally don't have a credit card, so that option of getting a sh- small loan isn't available. So, uh, Bao was launched uh, about 19 months ago, and this year, it's uh, I would project it will do about uh, 30 million underwriting of loans. Oh my God. So it's uh, larger wow. than, larger than almost anybody. Oh and
2: so the AI component of this is mm-hmm. the machine looks at the user yes. and basically decides right. whether or not that you, to lend them money yes. based on online yes. activity, right? Or what exactly. And, and based on what exactly?
3: What's the data? And that's a good question because most uh, Americans would assume it's based on some credit report, which costs, you know, some $20 to, to get. Uh, can't possibly be, be that because number one, they're not accurate. And number two, they're really not they targeting microloans. Yeah. They don't exist. They're right. not targeting microloans. ratings agencies. And also, still, it's right, not China. economically sensible yeah. because if you pay $20 for the report, yeah. you're only making interest on the $200 loan. It's not economical. So it's all based on uh, content. Uh, basically, you fill out the forms. When you want to borrow the money, you tell them your name. You uh, you, you uh, scan your ID, and then you give them your address, and then you upload some con- information from your phone. Uh, such as you know what apps you use, your contact lists, and those are scanned through to not—I mean—they protect the privacy, but they scan it through and compare it with online databases to see if this represents a human person or someone who's likely to be fraud. And this <laughs>
1: seems like you could hack this though—you could just, just create the, the right contact list, you could download the right suite of apps. You could just modify your behavior across a period of time. And right. Then so to, it's, to, a, to,
3: it's a game of cat and mouse, right? right? So the deep learning needs to constantly adapt to that. Right. So and it's, uh, yeah. So, of course, there are default rates. Initially, the default rates were quite high in the teens. And now they're in the low single digits after uh, learning from, from data.
2: I'm still curious about this data because I'm trying to picture, like, what's on my own phone mm-hmm. and whether... You would lend me money or not, um, based <laughs> not. on my face. Like Kaiser's is one of my contacts. Is that going to be a black mark? I mean, is it? You know, are, are you looking at you know the the contacts in the phone book, uh, yeah. in the address book, and and uh, you you have some kind of economic score for them, or you know, do they have criminal records, or what exactly is the information that you it's, can extract? It's not
3: explainable. See, most of deep learning, you can't give a single reason, and that's not because deep learning is not smart. It's because we're not smart. We generally think there is a three- or four-dimensional answer to things, and we give you if-then-else, right? We would say, oh, it's because Kaiser is your friend and because you make less than $5,000 a month and you only renting the place uh, for four months. Therefore, it, it's unsafe to lend to you. That's the human way of thinking. But in the deep learning, there are 2,000 dimensions they look at, and these 2,000-vector space, they make a arbitrarily complex curve that separates It's the safe to lend money to people and the not safe to lend money to people. And that's the decision it makes. There's no... easy way to explain it without going through the 2,000 dimensions. And so, I mean,
2: there's a very real possibility that the machine will decide not to lend money to people with a mole on their chin, because Uh, it's found that people with moles on their chins just don't (laughs) pay the loans back. I mean, mean, that's a ridiculous example. I'll give you a realistic uh, example.
3: uh, The type of phone that you use is a relevant member of the 2,000 classes.
1: Oh, yeah. So that makes sense to yeah. me. Right. Yeah.
3: And that, that wouldn't be something a loan officer would, would ever understand. The other question that comes up is what about bias? It actually doesn't have, uh, human bias as you, you, we think about it because it's not trained on human loan officer decisions. It's trained on whether you, you pay back the money or not. Right. So in order to build up the system, you got to give out a lot of bad loans and lose a lot of money and get a lot of money back and,
1: and build up your training data yourself over time. You know, we got to save a lot of questions for next time. But, okay. Uh, unfortunately, we're run, running short of time. There's one more, uh, I think, a, a major theme that you've been you've been thinking a lot about. I saw you in January at Davos, and I'm sure as you noticed, um, and I, I certainly did, there's a, a major uh, theme that we heard repeated again and again in many sessions was the need to prepare ourselves for the inevitable economic disruptions that AI and advanced robotics are going to bring. And part of it, of course, is that we were all really chastened um, by the whole populist uprising happening around the world because of our failure, elites' failures to really kind of prepare the world for globalism and the disruptions that that was going to bring, the dislocations. So, um, you know... You've devoted an awful lot of brain power to thinking about what we have to do to prepare for for this future. And in your commencement address at, at Columbia, uh, you said that in ten years you think that AI is going to replace half of human jobs. Right. Uh, that we're going to enter an age of confusion uh, yep. where many people, as you said, uh, will uh, maybe may become depressed as they lose the jobs and the corresponding self actualization. You know? mm-hmm. uh, right. So this is on top of a host of other potential ills, chiefly, you know. Greater well income and wealth inequality, uh, which is going to be really really problematic, not just among individuals, but you know within a country, but between countries as well, between developed and developing countries. What should we be doing? How should we be retooling and thinking about this in in concrete ways? Right. Well, first some there are some good things too. I also mentioned oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah, age yeah, of, of
3: the age of plenty, right? Because well, the AI will make so much money that the the possibility of giving a universal minimum stipend, I think, is is actually quite realistic if the governments get their act together. Uh, so coming back to what we as individuals should do, well, we should aspire to do things that the machines cannot do. So that would be the uh, the, the obvious answer. So what things can machines not do? Uh, machines cannot create. They cannot come up with new uh, algorithms. They cannot come up with a new form of art. They cannot create a new sculpture. They cannot write a new play or a new movie. So those types of things would be one class. The second type is uh, be the user of AI. So when AI tools come out, you become very good at it and become a symbiotic combination so that you plus the tool becomes more than the the sum of the parts. parts, right? Uh, But I think the third one is probably the most uh, important because it's going to be all about people to people. The machines cannot do not have emotion. They don't have love. They will not generate the warm and fuzzy feeling. They don't know love. Uh, They don't have empathy and they don't have EQ. So this aggregation is what we human definitely have and machines definitely do not have. Uh, I don't think machines will ever get it and certainly not get it within 20 years. So we need to think about, can the displaced workers and also can ourselves get into a service job that may be just a very caring concierge, a wonderful masseuse, very very talkative and fun bartender, knowledgeable and uh, excited, passionate tour guide. Those types of jobs, I think, will be on the rise. And I think some jobs will go from Uh, professional to service such as a doctor when when a when a medical when a when a uh, AI doctor becomes better at diagnosis than a human doctor, the human doctor will be the bridge between the tool and the patient, and make the tough messages easier to bear, and give the encouragement that and the care and the attention and maybe the home visits that will give the patient uh, the the a, a higher chance of um, making it through the
1: difficulties. So Jiang, there's solely room for you, I hope. I mean as <laughs> <laughs> A New Yorker we correspondent.
0: We hope, we hope, but you know they might. You know, I mean, uh, I can imagine how a, ro- a robot might be better at doing her own fact checking than I am.
1: <laughs> the fact checking part. Jeremy, Whitty and urbane podcast host. That's all. On the, on the <laughs> uh, I think you three are pretty safe <laughs> for <laughs> I, I, twenty, I, 20 I, years.
2: I have to ask. I mean, when I was listening to a talk the other night, and you, you you spoke on these themes, and you talked about you know, for example, the value of a liberal arts education, and as somebody with a liberal arts education who you know spent the first 20 years of my adult life struggling to find two pennies to rub together hearing this message from an engineer um, uh, i was wondering like you know what's your advice to your own children i mean should we
3: still be studying engineering i think you should study what you love and what you're good at and uh, i had a liberal arts education but I also did computer science. I loved both parts and I think they come back to be greater than the sum of the, the parts, right? If I were just, if I just had the engineering education, I don't think I'd be writing this book. I don't think I would be thinking about implications for mankind. I don't think I'd be giving the commencement speech, right? So but it's if easy. I...
1: Just be, be a, a marvelously
3: gifted polymath. That's, that's all you need to do. It's easy, Jeremy. Do what you come love on. and uh, work really hard at it. This, I think this hasn't really changed with or without AI. and uh, But I do think a lot of liberal arts uh, majors become a little more interesting in the age of AI because the study of sociology, the study of uh, uh Psychology, the study of uh, social work, the study of philosophy, all changed because now there's this AI thrown into the equation.
1: In that commencement address, that you, had, you said some very heartfelt r- words about your own experience with cancer. Right. Yes. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I, I, we're, First of all, we're all very relieved to see how well you're doing and our fingers are all crossed. But uh, how did this experience change your outlook and your priorities? Um, in, in a nutshell, I mean, related to this question, because it seems to have a direct correlation to... To uh, your, your your feelings about what humanity should be in the AI age? Yes, it did. I
3: think uh, ten years ago, I might have been a lot more sympathetic to Elon Musk's call that we should become cyborgs because mm-hmm. that seems cool and it seems like high tech, and we want to maximize efficiency, maximize productivity, you know, um, and 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 become uh, very influential and change the world. But I, I I no longer think that's the highest priority. I think uh, what 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 maybe the creator of this world is sending us AI to, to remind us that these are not tasks that we should do anymore. The repetitive, the simple, the drudgery, and and our pursuit of Took money. Took a long time. <laughs> <laughs> the pursuit of money and fame may have gone too far. Maybe it's a time to step back and think about the meaning of life and uh, be with our loved ones and uh, send out love and, and um, uh, basically... Uh,
1: feel happy because you're able to love someone and be loved. Kaihuli, we are so grateful that you could make time to talk to us. Uh, it's an honor and a really great pleasure. Um, so please join us for a uh, recommendation for our listeners, won't you? Sure. <laughs> okay, well, before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at SubChina News and on Facebook at facebook.com slash subchina news. If you like our podcast, by all means, go leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes store or on Google Play or wherever you go to review apps. This helps and it means a lot to us. Recommendations, Jeremy, kick us off and then we'll go to Jiang after that and then to to, uh, to Kaifu. With the
2: okay, uh, this one maybe you've uh, read already because it's been burning up the internet it's a cover story of the Atlantic uh, of uh, this week the Atlantic magazine called My Family Slave yeah Alex Turner, um, yeah. yeah so the guy is um, Filipino American was. Uh, was he's Sorry. dead uh, he died a few months ago and uh, his family had what in China would probably call an IE but she wasn't paid she actually was a, basically a slave that right. they brought to the Philippines and she uh, brought up uh, the author and his siblings uh, um, basically almost as their mother um, and stayed in America never went back to the Philippines and it's this sort of confessional essay about uh, the story of his family it's generated a fair bit of controversy too it has for some reason I, I don't know you know the um, I mean it, this is when I kind of want to use that Chinese uh, insult Baizuo um, Baizuo I mean Baizuo <laughs> no, 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 no. sorry um, the white left it's kind of like the the politically correct Twitterers are upset because I don't know why they're upset. He didn't end
1: patriarchy and colonialism early enough or, or something. Okay. Uh, well, we can talk about it another time. But, yeah. Um, okay, uh, quickly, Jiang, what do you have for us?
0: Um, I, um, I'm i recommending this uh, documentary, in which I was involved in, in only a, a small part. It's called um, Too Abacus, Too Small to Jail. And it is um, about the only bank um, in America that was prosecuted for mortgage fraud in the wake of the um, 2008 financial crisis. I wrote a story about this um, for The New Yorker in 2015. But I think the documentary really is able to bring some of these characters to life that um, – a feature story um, is not able to do was directed by um, Steve James, who directed Hoop Dreams. And I think he's done a marvelous job. Where can and, we see it? Um, it's in theaters starting uh, May 19th, um, which might be today. I'm not sure. I no longer keep track of dates. <laughs> um, Abacus Too Small to Jail? Uh, too small. Abacus Too Small to Jail, a okay. documentary um, about this bank. So if you have a chance, go out and see it.
1: Great. Kai Fu, what do you have for us?
3: I'm going to make an anti-recommendation for all the science fiction movies except one. Uh, not that they're not entertaining and fun, but because they mislead us in this very important age of AI. The only science fiction movie that I think is not completely misleading is Frank and Robot. And I would recommend that you see it. I've uh, never
1: heard of that, Frank and Robot.
3: Well, because it doesn't involve uh, robots killing people, loving people, or uh, uh, controlling people. (laughs) It's about (laughs) a reasonably realistic robot that gets developed to accompany older people and the social problems they they cause and how they solve that. Uh, it, It has drama. It's not dramatic. It's a well-acted. Frank Langello is an uh, uh, excellent uh, actor. And uh, it's, I don't think it was a huge box office hit, but it's really the only one that I think will give us the proper way of thinking about when robots and AI come about, what we might do and what issues might come up.
1: Well, great. Okay. Uh, My recommendation very quickly is a piece from November of 2013. Actually, it's a few years old called Friends Like These, How a Famed Chinese Dissident Got Caught Up in America's Culture Wars by Jonathan Allen, a long form Reuters piece about Chen Guangcheng and Jerry Cohen, Pastor Bob Fu, uh, that whole uh, kerfuffle. Wow. Uh, We had the very good pleasure last night of interviewing Jerry Cohen. uh, So this has been very much on my mind. Anyway, once again, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you've got to get out of here. Chiang, it was great to see you. Yeah, same you. Here. Kaifu, we'll we'll Thanks. hopefully talk to you again next time we're in Beijing. You bet. Thank you. Okay, great. Jeremy, good to see you as always. Likewise. Okay. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldhorn. Special thanks this week uh, to An La Cheng and Sarai Darabi from SubChina. Thanks also to Trump International Hotel. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm not going to thank them. <laughs> Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com and visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.